thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We ask that you let us see what you'd have us to see from it. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. And we started uh, last week, we talked about the uh, year of rest and release, that every seventh year they would release all the people, all the debt from everybody. And so we're going to continue with that theme here today on verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto you and serve you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let them go free from, from you. And when you send them out from you, you shall not let them go away empty. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your floor and out of your winepress. For of that wherewith the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give unto him. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this, this thing this day. So we look at this and it talks about if a Hebrew individual sells themselves to you. And how this actually worked out is usually you went into debt. And it's kind of an amazing thing. Number one, you were never supposed to go into debt anyway. If you remember a couple chapters ago, you weren't supposed to borrow. They weren't supposed to borrow. They weren't supposed to, to loan. But if you got into debt, the opportunity was that somebody would be able to pay your debt and you would serve them for six years. Part of the deal here, though, is the eldest child, the eldest son, got a double portion of the inheritance. And the reason they got a double portion of the inheritance wasn't just because they were special and they were to live higher than everybody else. They were to put away the double portion, the extra portion, and use it to support the family if the family got into any kind of trouble. So if you had a younger brother or sister who just couldn't handle their money and, and went bankrupt, you were to, as the older brother, take the extra share of money you had received, pay off their debts so that they didn't get into this situation of servitude, especially being sold to somebody who wasn't an, a Jewish person. But in this situation, when, you, when they got destitute and they got into a financial hole, any of the Hebrew people could pay your debt off. You'd serve them for six years indentured service. It's been around forever. You, um, many of the people that came to America came as indentured servants. Servants, their, their way was paid by another, by somebody, either on, on either side of the coast, and they would serve when they got here for seven years, just as this, just as this was was uh, talking about. But they were getting to serve. Why were they serving? Because they went broke, basically. It could be that they did something wrong and, and had a fine that they couldn't pay. Because remember, whenever you stole something or, or borrowed something and it died in your possession, you had to give back 20%, give back plus, plus on it, 20%. So these individuals would be in service and they were to serve for six years. And at the end of six years, on the seventh year, they would be released. And it's the same thing with the debt. Every seven years, the debt would be released. And so it says, and it says you're not to send them away empty-handed. They've been serving you. They, they came in with nothing, obviously, because they were broke and had to sell themselves and for service. And now he says when they leave, you don't send them away empty. You give them, and I love the way what he says. Verse 14, you shall furnish them liberally out of the flock. 
It's not like, okay, well, I'm going to give you two sheep so you can get started. It is give them a decent portion of your flock so that they can have something to start with. Because you're going to, out of those flocks, they're going to have to offer sacrifices and, and be able to sell and, and make, make a living. And so it says you, make, you give them liberally from your flock of your floor or your threshing floor and your wine presses. And then here's the reason that wherewith the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give unto them. God says you were kind, and basically saying you were kind enough to pay their debt and keep them out of slavery with other people because basically the only way you're going to get into debt would be if you're paying uh, interest on loans that you couldn't afford to pay, which meant that you had taken a loan from a non-Israelite, or you're just so bad at handling money that you lose all of your all of your possessions and try to take out loans from another Israelite who doesn't charge interest. And so you would end up selling your services because that's all you had left. You sold your services. And God says, when they leave at the end of that time, you give them liberally because I have blessed you because of your kindness to them. And you know, this is something we need to be doing as Christians also is being generous to others. Not necessarily buying their service because we, that's, that's not allowed anymore. But, you know, God tells us that we're to give generously. We're to be free with our, our giving. And I've said this over and over. When, we're, when we give, God blesses. Even if we give to somebody who's cheating us, God will still bless us. They'll, they'll be accountable. And I've said this before. That's what I used to tell people, especially in Sacramento, when I was dealing with a lot of uh, people with handouts in Sacramento around the church. And people go, what do you do with these people? And go, well, if God tells you to give, you give. But what if, they, what if they're cheating us? Then that's between them and God, and, and you gave to the right heart, so you'll be blessed. Now, if you knew that it was wrong and you foolishly gave to them, maybe not a blessing, but when you're, when you're generous and you're just being kind to people, God blesses. And here he says, he will bless. You've gotten a lot of stuff because God blessed you. God, God does not say, oh, you just threw away all your money. This is one of those things that when we look at things God's way, God says, give a tithe and offering to him and be generous to the poor, and he returns the money. And the world would say, well, you can't, you know, pay all your bills first, and if there's anything left, give, give it away. Well, from my experience, a few times I tried that in my younger days, if I paid, tried to pay all my bills first, there was never any money for God. And it didn't work out. So I learned very quickly, give God his portion and the rest of the money seemed to go a lot further and the bills would get paid anyway. So God has got an attitude of take care of one another. And he kept telling them, take care of them. They're your brothers and sisters, their family, take care of them. And we need to be doing the same thing, especially within the church, we help one another. Now, and we may be a little more careful outside the church, but at the same time, we need to be generous. And the church has been notorious for being able to give when things happen. Uh, whenever there's an earthquake or a typhoon or a hurricane or a tornado or floods, the churches are usually the first groups to get to the disaster area, usually before any government agency. And it, you know, especially like the Southern Baptist with their rescue group, they get there, they get to places long before anybody else gets there because they mobilize immediately and get people out there to feed them and, and help them with washing their clothes and getting, getting food, getting clothes, and they're right there as quick as possible. Churches are the reason we have hospitals the way we do. 
because we took God's word to care for the sick. We do, we've done or, churches that help bring orphanages into existence. Because in the old days, especially the Old Testament and the Roman days, if you had a child you didn't want, you just left it on the side of the street or threw it in the, threw it in the river as an offering to a god or you took it to a, one of the temples and you burnt the child. And that was how unimportant life was to them. And you know, the sad thing is, in, there are places in our world today where life is still that unimportant. Most of the Middle East, much of Africa, much of the, the uh, Asia is that, has that very low opinion of life. Uh, and it's just not, you don't want to get rid of it. It's not, it's not that important. It's God who brings in the value and importance of life because he says, you're made in my image. And the church has been one that's raised up to that and, and tried to help the world. And the sad thing is, as we watch our world getting more and more like the days of Noah, we're seeing a, a less and less respect for life. We see abortion. We see uh, the idea that you can just kill a young child. It's not a big deal. Uh, if somebody gets too old, kill them because they're a drain on society and they're a drain on the finances. Get rid of them. Uh, <laughs> And you, and you go, well, you know, uh, physician-assisted suicide. You don't think you need to live? Well, here, just kill yourself. You know, there's the whole attitude of our world is that life is totally cheap and unimportant. We have people that commit mass murders and then turn the gun on themselves because they didn't have any care for those lives and they don't have care for their own life. And this is the problem that as we get further and further away from God and his position on the importance of life, we see all of this stuff happening. But again, and I point this out, it's not new. It's just going back to what was in existence before Christianity and beside Christianity in places that weren't controlled by Christianity. And now we're seeing people pull away from Christianity and we're seeing that cheapening of life happen. And it's a real critical issue that we're facing. And it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse and we're going to see more and more death. And you know, we look at this, abortion has killed an entire generation of, of people who should be spending money right now. There, you know, the, the studies have shown that we've lost an entire generation of people who should be buying and, and producing. And then we wonder why we're not able to produce an economy that does anything because we've lost so much. And we, we want to be very careful. We want to pray. We want to say, God, how can we help our community how can we help people and a lot of it is going to be share the gospel pray for people pray for revival share the gospel with people because only God is going to be able to change where we're go where we're at and as I've said over and over again I'm not sure that even that is going to work in the long run because I think we're at the end times but our only hope is a revival and I pray for a revival. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to tell people about God and hope that there's a revival and see what God will do. And maybe he'll extend, maybe he'll extend time a little further. But we're looking at really wicked things happening. Everything that God says is right and, and, and good, man is trying to say is, no, it's bad. You know, they're saying that marriage is bad. Uh, a... Monogamous marriage is bad. The husband and a wife is a bad thing. And, you know, uh, homosexuality is good. Living together is good is what their world is trying to tell us. And it's like, no, that's not what we 
do. And God says life has great value. The world says it's cheap and, and, and not worth anything. And so we look at this, and, the, and what the world is saying is everything opposite of what God says, but yet we're told that's exactly what they would say. That in the end days, that man would say that good is bad and bad is good, and, and that all of this stuff would happen. And here we're seeing God saying, you did right in, in bringing these people into your, into your home, even though it's for servitude to pay off a debt, but now when they leave, give them enough to get on, get on the right foot. And God is saying, and God says, you know, you, I blessed you because of it. And then another reason he said in verse 15, and you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. Oftentimes when Moses is giving these things about doing good to people, he goes, I want you to remember. Now, now he's talking to a group of people that don't remember slavery because it was mom and dad who were enslaved. The, these guys are the one generation that's wandered in the wilderness for 40 years while mom and dad and grandpa and grandma died out. But he's going, remember, there was a time when this nation was a slave in Egypt. And you were being treated as the bond servants and, and had to work hard for over 100 years. And, God, and so he's saying, we're going to be kind to one another because we're going to remember. And this is something that we as Christians also have to do. We need to remember. Remember what it was like without God. And I have trouble with that because I got saved at such a young age. But we need to be really willing to understand, and as the saying goes, there but by the grace of God go I. That we could be this person that we're trying to deal with, that didn't get saved, that didn't follow Jesus, that didn't learn to, to obey him. And we need to be very kind to people because we could have been them. If, if we didn't have the same grace that we had and, and, we didn't, and we didn't accept God like they didn't, we could be right where they're at. And I look at this with the temper that I had. I'm sure I would have been a prisoner you know, with the temper I had as a young child. I know that I would have killed somebody at some point in time because of the way I got mad at people. Were you that bad? Oh, yeah. I was really bad. I had a really bad temper. I was always in fights, always. All you had to do was look cross-eyed at me and make me think that you did, had. Uh, well, I've changed a lot in those years. God has changed me a lot in those years. Uh, but even as a 10, 11-year-old, I was always in fights all the time. And I was mean and won my fights. <laughs> didn't, matter how, didn't matter how big, oh, it didn't matter how big or little the guy was, I, I won. So, uh, but because of my temper, so I know that if I hadn't got saved, eventually I would have killed somebody. I know I would have. So God did a great, gracious thing in my life. And we need to keep in mind, you know, where would we be if we didn't know God? You know, and this is something we need to keep in mind. Not to be depressed, not to be, but to be soft and tender toward the person who is still a prisoner in, in their sin and bound up by their sin. Because if we can remember that we used to be bound up by sin and maybe could have been, had a whole different life if we hadn't come to know God, we, we are, it should give us tenderness toward that other person. Sometimes we get hard toward the other person because it's like they remind us so much of ourselves that we go, I don't want to have anything to do with this person because I see who I, who I would have been. And that's the wrong attitude because we need to be able to bring Christ into their situation and say, God loves you. God has a plan for you. You need to come to God. Whatever, whatever term you want to use for people, but you know, 
we bring the love of God and the grace of God into their life and maybe they'll get changed and be able to have a relationship with God in a very strong place. And God always was there telling them, remember, you were a slave. You were this. You were obstinate. You were disobedient. And I lifted you out. And this goes to God's grace. Why did he pick Israel? Because they were better than everybody else? Oh no, we've seen that over and over again. They weren't any better. Matter of fact, they seemed to be worse than most of the nations in many ways. But God's grace chose them. God's grace chose Abraham out of the middle of Ur of Chaldees and said, I've got a promise for you. God's grace came to, to Noah and said, I'm going to let you be the righteous one that, save, that saves humanity. He goes and he brings them in and says, I've chosen you. You haven't chosen me. We as Christians have that same process. God has chosen us. We did not really choose him when it comes down to it. He put us in the right circumstances, the right place, whatever it might be, but he chose us. And we responded. And it says, we love him because he first loved us. And we responded to his love and, and chose to love him. And how that works out between him and me and which one has the greater, greater responsibility for me getting saved, I really don't care. You know, we both have a part in it. I have to make a decision and he holds out the, he holds out the gift. You know, and I've always wondered that why, went, why did I as a very young child when nobody in my family go, go to church, when nobody woke me up on Sundays, nobody told me to go to church, I just wanted to go to church. Did God put that in it or was it my heart that wanted to? I don't know. I think that God put it in my heart to do that. He wants us to and our, our desire to be obedient to him is how it starts. But, you know, I got to the place where my tithe is the first, well, my tithe and offering because I'm, well I'm well above tithe. But when I give the money, it's the first thing I do and I don't even begrudge it. It's like, this is just, okay, God, here's the money. The important thing is always there's a... Very old so phrase, cool, yeah, very old phrase that says you can't outgive God. And believe me, it's the more I give to him, the more he, he, more he pours back out at me. And it's, it's very interesting to watch how God works and how my bills get paid and how things happen. And it's very, very strange now when I give to a church that actually I get my money back in the paycheck. But <laughs> we look back and we say, I'm going to give. Why am I giving? First, God commands it. God says to do it. And then we start doing it because we just want to. And then we start doing it just because it's... I, I've gotten to the point where I think it's fun to give God the, the check that I give him and watch, watch how he's going to give back and say, okay, God, how are you... you know, especially because I am the type, I'm so plan-oriented that I've... At the beginning of the month, I know how much, how much short I am by the end of the month because my budget tells me and it's okay, God, how are you going to meet this much, this, this month? But it is fun to watch how God blesses. And here he's telling the people, you brought these servants in, and I blessed you. Treat them good as they're going out. Because if they didn't treat them good, then God's inher inherent in there was God's kind of giving them a warning that if you don't do it, then I'm not going to bless you the next time you, you do this. I mean, he goes, because it said that in the end of verse 14, Wherewith the Lord your God has blessed you, shall you give them. So there's this inherent kind of uh, message that if you don't give generously and liberally, 
uh, I'm not going to bless you the next time <laughs> you, you do this. And you know, this is very much true when, you, when we give to God. If we're not being generous with him, or we're not being, as Paul said, uh, a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver, then God knows it. And, and it's been rightly said that if you're not going to give God with a willing heart, you're better off not giving to him at all. You kind of knew what you were getting, because especially if it was kinsmen, they, they knew you. You know, sometimes they did it just because they had to. You know, it was the, their job to really do it. And even though you were a lazy bum, and that's why you didn't harvest your field and went broke in the first place. Uh, but, and it could be that something, circumstances just happened. Uh, the tornado came through and wiped out your house and half your fields, and you couldn't, and you went broke that year. And then the next year you had a string of <laughs> bad things happening to you. Yeah, and, and it said that they were to be honest and, and kind and generous. Verse 16 says, And let there be, and if it shall be that he say unto you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house because he is well with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear at the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also unto your maidservant you shall do likewise, that it seem not hard unto you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant unto you in serving you six years, and the Lord your God shall bless you in all that, that you do. So here we have what's being called, we're going to learn later on in another place, that it was be called a bond servant. The guy gets to the end of the six years, is supposed to go free, and kind of decides, well, I'm a total idiot at holding, handling my money, and this, it's been kind of good being in this house. I've had a nice bed. Uh, you know, the work's not too bad, that I'm getting fed, and you just decide that you want to stay and be that person's servant. And you say, well, I'm just going to stay. And you might have just liked the, you might just like the situation better than being on your own. And you go, I just, I just want to stay your servant. At that point, they would take the, an awe, a great big nail or type thing, and, and make a hole in your ear and basically put an earring in it type deal. And you, would become, and you would become their servant for the rest of your life. Now, when Paul and Peter and James and John and all of them in the New Testament write the New Testament books, they almost all of them have identified themselves, Paul, a bond slave of Christ. This is what he's referring to. I was sold to Christ. Now I choose to be his servant. This is a chosen. I choose to be the servant. I don't want to be released from this person. They've got a nice house. They've got nice possessions. They, they make me feel good. They treat me good. Now, obviously, you wouldn't do this if somebody had been beating you and treating you bad, made you sleep in the, in the barn or whatever. But you get this person who's been treating you good, and you go, man, my life's better here than it has ever been in my lifetime, and probably better than it will be if I go someplace else. I just want to be this person's servant. But it's also the picture of the relationship of Jesus and his servants. This person chose to be the servant of that person for perpetuity, kind of like family. Yeah. You basically hoped that they were going to treat you the same way they did for the six years you were in, in a servant to them. And, adopted family. and it turned out to be more of an adopted family. And it was your family who usually bailed you out. So it was like, and like I say, most people that would do this would be the type of that would look and say, and you know, I got into all this trouble because I didn't know how to handle my money. I, I, you know, I didn't do well. I might as well just stay as this person's servant. It's a good place to be. And that's kind of where we are with Jesus. He brings us in. He buys us. He pays our debt. We come into his service. And, when we, and most Christians, when they first start serving God, do it out of compulsion, out of maybe even gratitude. 
But we get to, there hopefully comes that point in time where we get to, like Paul and all the disciples, we're a bond slave because we want to serve him, not because we have to anymore. Not just because he was nice to us and, you know, when we first got saved, but we just know how precious it is to serve him. And I know that's where I'm at. I just love to serve God. It's not that I expect it. I don't even expect anything anymore. I just want to serve him. And yet he also brings back blessings for serving him. And this bond servant picture is a picture of Christ, the one who is the perfect master and gives you a great, greater life than you could have on your own to the point where you just want to be his servant. And again, that's when, when you read bond servant in the New Testament, that's, this is the event they're talking about. At the end of the six years, you said, hey, uh, I like it in this house. I don't want to leave. I, I want to I continue being your servant. Yeah, I'm, your, I'm your bond servant, God. Tell me what it is that you want me to do. Uh, Adrian Rogers, this morning's message, he's been dead for a while, but the message that was this morning, he was talking about, when you start your day, do you go to God and ask him, what is it you want, him, want you to do today? We're his bond slaves. It's, we should be there going to him and saying, God, am I here just to live, or do you have something for me to do? And we need to be going before him because he isn't here just wanting us to live. He doesn't want us just to exist. He says, I've got a plan for your life. So a maid servant is a, just a maid? Just a, just a woman or a girl, <laughs> as opposed to a manservant. Usually the maid servants would work in the inside. So they, they would never be a bond servant. They could be a bond servant too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the maid service could be saying the same thing. You know, uh, I don't want to be out on my own because I'm. You know, I don't have a husband. My dad's dead. My brothers are all dead. It's and it would be more likely for a maid servant to want to be a bond servant than for the man because in this case, a maid servant, you know, a woman would have had a lot harder time if, if they weren't married or have a father to go to because. They had no rights in this, in this, in this uh, area. So if they were being treated well in the house that they were being servant in, they'd probably just say, this is a better place. There's, there's people here that are going to take care of me. There's food on the table. I'm not going to have to go out and struggle and, and reap, the, reap the fields, you know, like, like uh, Ruth did where she went out in the harvest time and, and harvested the edges of the, edges of the field and everything. Those were the provisions God made for the, for the poor. But in this particular case, they were, as, a bond, as a bond servant, they would be, my life's going to be easier. I like Ruth. I like that. Ruth is a good, good story. And so they, they were made into this servant who was no longer going to be freed at the end of six years. Once you made this decision, you were a servant for the rest of your, your days to that family. And this is, again, the picture of Christ. We as Christians are a bondservant to Christ. We've chosen to worship him and follow him and be his servant for the rest of this life and the rest of the next, <laughs> rest of eternity. But he is the perfect master. He is the perfect one to be a servant unto. So that's what this is a picture of. This is that picture of Christ and that bondservant relationship where, where we choose to serve him. And... You know, God is not trying to you know, make, us, make us do anything. He wants us to serve him out of love. And not because we get anything out of it or not because he, we're trying to buy his love, you know, or win his love. We just love him so much because he loves us and then we just serve him. 
And the greatest idea is for people who have had good families, where you just want to do what, what your parents want, not because you're trying to make them love you or anything like that, but just because you want to do nice things for your parents because you love them for the same reason that we love Jesus. They loved us. And I know that that, that picture is broken down in the last few years when, when a lot of families have broken down. And I was very fortunate. I came from a good family that loved, loved me and all that other stuff. So I, I have that very good picture of what a family is supposed to be like. And I know that Satan has worked overtime to try to destroy families for just that purpose. He doesn't want people to see God the way God is described. God says, I'm your father. You were sacrificing everything you had for what they were going to support you and offer you. And that's why it's a picture of us as Christians. We give up everything we think we, we have in the flesh, which is what we realize was nothing. And he gives us everything. And by being the bond slave, you had a place to sleep and food on the table and clothes on your back. The whole thing I'm bringing out on this, it's a picture of our relationship with Christ more than anything else. I don't know how many people ever really decided, yes, I want to be a bond servant. I mean, it was there. Uh, and I'm sure there were people that took, a, took advantage of it, especially the maid servants. If they didn't have anywhere else to go, it was, it was better off to be a servant than to be a single woman with no brothers or sister, uh, brothers or, or uh, fathers to take care of, you know, to protect and take care of you. So for many of the maidservants, it probably took this up as an okay offer. Especially when you said it was hard for women back then. Very hard. <clears throat> Very hard. They, they, were, they didn't have a lot of rules to protect them, and people took advantage of them and physically and emotionally. And uh, when they labored, women had no rights. And remember we talked about during the resurrection, it's amazing that Jesus showed himself to women first because a woman could not even testify in court, even as an eyewitness, on a crime because they had no, no rights and they were discounted that bad. They were literally at that point in time considered property and they were considered property of their father until he married them off and they became property of their husband. For right or wrong, that's what it was in that day. And to be single, be a single, you know, going back to Ruth and Boaz, uh, Naomi, you know, that was a hard place for her. She had land that she couldn't buy back because she didn't have the couldn't raise the money to be able to buy her land back and she also had her daughter-in-law with her so it was two women trying to survive in a world that did not respect women at all and so we see this whole picture of this is a picture of Jesus and our and our relationship of, with him in verse 19 all the firstling males that come of your herd and of your flocks you shall sanctify unto the Lord your God and you shall do no work with the firstling of your bullock, nor shear the firstling of your sheep. You shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord shall choose you and your household. So the firstborn males of all the animals were given to God. Now, if you remember when we studied Exodus and Leviticus, if it was an offer, something that you could kill and eat... You took it to the Lord, you made an offering, and you got it back as a, as a gift, and you had to eat it within 48 hours. But if it was a donkey or a mule or, some, or a camel, something you couldn't sacrifice and eat, you had to redeem it with money. And if you couldn't afford to redeem it with money, you broke its neck and killed it. 
Okay, so the firstborn of any animal was to be given to God either by an offering, a, redem a, paid, a redemption paid for it, or killed it. And this was a pretty expensive thing because you see this, you know, you didn't even get to take the, the first coat of uh, wool from your lambs. You had, to, you had to, that was gone. Everything about that firstborn was going to God. And if you remember at the very beginning here, we talked how the God took the Levite tribe of Levite as an entire tribe belonging to him instead of taking the firstborn male of every family. Okay, because that was his other option. His other option would have been said, okay, the firstborn male of your family goes to God <laughs> and serves in the temple, not for a sacrifice, but for service. And he, God says, no, we're not going to do that to every family. I'm just going to take the entire tribe of Levi as, my, as mine. And every, every Levite born thereafter belongs to God and not the firstborn of every, every family. And you think about that, you know, in, in our day, especially when you only have three or four kids, you might, you might lose your only male heir to God if that rule is still going into effect. You know, and we were Hebrew. It's, okay, you, know, you were born, you belong to God. <laughs> So God said no, and when it came to the humans, he took the Le tribe of Levi, and when it came to the animals, they either had sacrificed, redeemed it if it was not a sacrificable animal, or killed that animal. And, and here, I mean, it, it was kind of fun. You got to eat the animal that you were given to God, but you know, it was a Thanksgiving offering, and that was what we talked about way back when we studied the offerings. Uh, you took the fat and the, and the organs and the... And, and, and parts, certain parts of it, and he burned those as an offering to God. And the priest got a shoulder of the animal, and then you got the rest of the animal, and you had to eat it within 48 hours. So if you have a great big bullock or, or even a good-sized goat, you pretty much had to get your, all your friends and neighbors together with you and celebrate, saying, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a party. I have to get this whole thing eaten in, in two days. So you, you'd have a great big party and have a have a whole thing and anything not eaten in that period of time was burnt and destroyed. But God is saying, all the firstborn belong to me. Why? Because Jesus was going to be the firstborn of God that redeemed us as a great offering. So God says, the firstborn all belong to me. And it says, you will offer it in the place that the Lord shall choose you and your household. And we now... We know that when they first came across into the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant stayed at Shiloh. And then when David became king and he conquered Jerusalem, he moved the, tem the, the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem and eventually Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. So the, the tabernacle had two resting places in its after the, after the wandering <laughs> period of time, Shiloh and Jerusalem. And at first it was just outside of Jer Jerusalem at the threshing, threshing floor where the death angel was stopped on, on David, on, when David got mad at God. And then it went into the, into the tabernacle built by Solomon. So we see this and he says, and God is always saying, in the place that I will choose, that I will choose. And we ended up, it ended up being in Jerusalem, which is pretty much the center of Israel. No matter where you're at, it's fairly central to, to Israel, uh, to anywhere in Israel, even when they had their full borders. So it gave a centralized place. And remember, 
there's going to be feasts where all the males of, the, of Israel three times a year have to go to the tabernacle to worship. And that's, uh, we're going to see that in these next chapters, but it's Passover, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles that they all have to go, all the males were to return to the tabernacle three times a year and worship God. And usually they would take their whole family. Not always, but often they would. But the only ones required to go were the men. And that would have been any child 12 years old, uh, any male 12 years old or older, and all of the adults, full-fledged adults, three times a year were to go to, go to Jerusalem. Now, in those days when you were walking, that was a pretty good, uh, good trip from the north, north part because in Jesus, where even in, in Galilee, which is pretty close to the north, it was a two- to three-week trip just to get to Jerusalem from there mostly because you went all the way to the Jerusalem, to the Jordan and down, you skipped, you didn't go through Samaria. But it was a long trip, and it was a, you know, you were away from work for a while, and it took you three weeks to get there, three weeks to get back, plus the, plus the days that you were in there. So you were, you were be gone for two to three, you know, two, two and a half months from, from your uh, town when you went down. This was a big deal to go make this trip. You know, food, water, lodging. <laughs> So it was a big, it was a big deal. Uh, and then in verse 21, And if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind, or it have an ill blemish, or you shall not sacrifice it unto the Lord. You shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person shall eat alike, as, it is, as the roebuck and as the heart. Only you shall not eat the blood thereof. You shall pour it out on the ground. So if there was any defect in that firstborn male... It did not go to the tabernacle, but you still killed it and ate it, but you didn't have to go to the tabernacle with it. And you, and basically it said anybody in town would come and, come and eat it with you. It didn't matter. Uh, it still had to be consumed within that 48 hours, so it was, okay, just invite. Uh, you kind of get the picture of when, uh, we t- when, in the parable, when Jesus said the, the king ca- called a wedding feast for his son, and everybody who was invited said, no, we're not coming, and he finally came down, and he says, just, okay, go out into the roadways and byways and pre- compel anybody who comes along to come into, the, come into this. This is the picture we're having here, okay? You're going to kill it. It's not an offering, so just anybody. Just get anybody to come and eat it. It's going to be the, the picnic for the town. You know, have everybody in town, you, you know, we want to think about these these towns in that day were not usually all that big. Some of the cities could be 10 or 20,000, 30,000, maybe even 100,000 on a really big town. But most of your towns were just one family with multiple generations. So you were lucky if you had three or 400 people in the town and that was your town. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was just a tiny little town. When he lived in Nazareth, it was just a tiny little town that, that, uh, that he lived in. You know, and so it wasn't the big city. You know, he would have been considered, we would, in our day, in, in our jargon, we would have called him the country hick. You know, he's from that little backwater town out there. You know, nobody, nobody sophisticated or knowledgeable come from that town. It's just, you know, they're, they're backwards in that town. And that's how he would have been considered. He was just from a small town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, if you remember uh, Nathaniel, uh, I think it was Nathaniel, he said, you know, nothing good comes from Nazareth. 
Uh, and that's, you know, that, that was what he's basically saying. Now, it's just a little country hick town, you know, no, nothing, nobody ever good comes out of there. Nobody that knows, is worth knowing comes from, comes from there. And that was the reputation he had. Besides the fact that he was considered a bastard child because, you know, he was born out of wedlock. So he had everything going against him when he started ministering. And we know that even the, even the uh, scribes and Pharisees knew his background because at one time they go, well, at least we know who our father is. And they were making a slap in the face of him. You know, you, you, know, you don't have a father and we all know that. Uh, or you don't have a legitimate father. And so here we're seeing if it had a blemish in it, it was still to be used as food, but it was to be a party for the town. Anybody and everybody was to come to it. And it says, you shall not eat the blood. Why not eat the blood? Because the blood was, the life of the, of the animal was in the blood. The life of the people were in the blood. And that's given several times in, in Leviticus, several times in Deuteronomy. And it goes all the way back to Genesis, chapter 9, where it talks about don't eat the blood of the animal. When, when God gives permission to man to eat animals in chapter 9, he says, you can eat the animals. They're now meat for you. Just do not eat the blood. So the blood restriction goes way back beyond, before, the, before the law. It goes all the way back to the very first time that God said that you could eat, eat, eat blood. It was one thing that the apostles said that, that the uh, Gentiles were to do when they became Christians was to abstain from food offered to idols and don't eat, don't eat uh, the blood. And so this restriction has been out there forever. And for me, that's a really hard part because I love my steaks as rare as you can possibly get them. So, you know, they got to just be warm in the center. And so, uh, but by the same token, our meat today doesn't have blood in it anyway. It has the, the red filler that they fill it back up to make it look like blood. So... Most of us never eat blood anyway. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that you help us to be your bond servants, that we would choose to serve you willingly. Lord, if there's any that don't know you, that listen to this, that they will come to see that you are the Lord and Savior, that they deserve punishment for their sin, and that you paid for that price, and that they will ask you to come into their heart, forgive them of their sins, and repent. And Lord, we ask that you go with us as we leave today. Give us a wonderful day tomorrow with Thanksgiving. Help us to remember that it is a day to be thankful to you and for our country and everything that you've given us. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.